The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. I will not wear the mask. 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 I will not wear a mask. I will not get the vaccine. I will not get the vaccine. And I will not get the vaccine. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust, and I will not be afraid. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day. For the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of this world. I hate the work of those who follow it. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall stand. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with harmonious sound. For you, O Lord, have made me glad through your works. I will you, triumph in the works of your are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. I will defy tyrants. 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 And with that, good morning, America. Welcome Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, STUV. Got one mixed up there. WXYZ people and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at Sons of Liberty Media.com. And for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us here this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. Sons of Liberty Radio.com and also Sons of Liberty Media.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio, head over to sonsoflibertymedia.com, and there you'll see two um, videos at the top of the page. The one on the left is Bradley's show from yesterday, or not yesterday, but Saturday, two hours worth of Bradley Dean. Uh, he talks about the Herodians, and if you want to know what that's about, you need to check that out. You can do so up until 3 p.m. Eastern today, at which time he'll be live. Uh, by the way, if uh, let me make a plug there. Um, the Sons of Liberty are out at the Minnesota uh, State Fair. I believe it's the east end of the grandstand. So if you're out there, if you're in the state, or if you're traveling, whatever, and you want to go see 
Um, uh, the Sons of Liberty, you can catch them there. Lower level, East End, Grandstand. I believe I got that correct. <laughs> Check them out there. Uh, give some support there to them, and uh, uh, we appreciate it very much. Also, on the right side of the page is where we're streaming live. Just click on the uh, play button, blow it up on whatever device you got. Click on the Rumble icon, bottom right-hand corner, and join us in the chat on Rumble. Uh, we are streaming live to Rumble, Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Please subscribe to the channel. Also, beforeitsnews.com, top of the page there, dlive.tv at the Sons of Liberty. If you're on Twitter by chance, you want to catch us there, it's the Real Tim Brow. Don't put N on the end. Put a 2 in its place, the Real Tim Brow 2. <laughs> I always get cracked up thinking about that. Uh, we're also on Telegram. We're streaming live on our Telegram channel, Sons of Liberty. And then a variety of little pages that I have on Facebook that they're still allowing me to uh, use, so I'm going to use them. All right? I don't mind going on the devil's turf and, and those kinds of things. And uh, some people want to run away from it. Um, no, nah, that ain't me. If they kick me off and everything, I'll kind of leave it in the wayside. But, uh, yeah, we, you know, the gates of hell don't prevail against the church, right? Even if they kick us off. Uh, we're going to stay there as long as we can, and we'll find new places to be, whatever we need to do. Also, while you're at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, be sure to sign up for our email newsletter. That's right up under where we're streaming live. Uh, do that. You get that once a day. If you want our ministry email, that's once a week, and that comes out. Uh, you can sign up for that on SonsOfLibertyRadio.com. And then finally, if you agree with the message, you'd like to help us in doing what we do and putting that out, uh, there's a donate button at the top of the page. You can click on that, make a one-time donation, or you can partner with us monthly as a son or daughter of Liberty. Our store is also available. Lots of uh, conversation starters and equipping tools in there. This week we're highlighting again uh, Bradley's My War comic book novel. Um, this is done by former DC Comics artist Danny Bulinati. It's normally a donation of $15. This week only you can get 20% off when you use the promo code COMIC20. COMIC20 gets you 20% off. That's only through Saturday at midnight. So if you've been looking to get some of these to give away or one for yourself, now's the time to do it. Comic 20 gets 20% off. Okay. All right. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to do things. It's going to be a little different this morning. Okay. I'm going to play dad here. Not that you guys are children out there, but uh, just some things of, of how me as dad would do things with my kids as far as reading and instructing them with some things. So I think you're going to enjoy this. I do want to hit something, though, real quickly. Um, and that is, I, I'm not going to play it because this this is going to probably take some time for me to go through this morning. Uh, but this will be up in the archives, the Trump vaccine. This is the latest from uh, Greg Reese. Uh, if you guys have not seen this, this will be in the archive. You'll be able to check it out. It's It's going to take almost seven minutes, and I, I just want to use this time for, for what we're going to talk about. Also, in the news, uh, Trump family dunks on dissent. Oh, you, you, uh, you, you politically driven conservatives, Christian constitutionalists, oh, you're going to have a time with this, aren't you? Huh? Your boys are up there. You guys who want to choose the lesser of two evils. Now they're at each other. Ah, this is a good WWE match. It reminds me of Trump and uh, what was the guy's name, McMahon, when he shaved his head or whatever. This is what this is about. You're stealing our bit. Come on, Ron. You're stealing our bit, dude. What are you thinking? Now, for those of you who don't know DeSantis, just go back and do a little history on him and his CIA ties and Gitmo and all that other stuff. Also, rem remember, he's Roman Catholic. We've talked about that before, too. That's the ideology behind this. And if you're a Roman Catholic, 
I'm not attacking you. I'm attacking the theology. It is antichrist. It is apostate. It is not true biblical Christianity. It's just not. And then this story that came out too. Check this out. <laughs> Fuel leak interrupts launch countdown of NASA moon rocket. Uh huh. Look at this little thing. It, it's it's like they have. It, it's like the space shuttle. Um. You know, rocket boosters and the external tank, right? With a little capsule on top. Now, if you believe this, um, I, I got a bridge to sell you here in South Carolina. I mean, really, if you believe this thing's going to the moon, this is what they sent before. This is the Saturn V, right? It's roughly the same height. You can tell from, well, I guess if that's the same kind of... Uh, if that's the same size that they use for this little scaffolding that's beside it. But they're wanting you to believe that they're going to send this thing right here to the moon. <laughs> Just... Oh, and they did it. They did this one with basically what was this. Now, I had one of these. I don't know if you guys remember this. This is the Commodore 64. This is basically the computing power of what they allegedly sent somebody to the moon for. We've done a show on that with Bryce Sabrell. Uh, and um, it, 64 kilobits. Some of these things in the box now, if you've got one of these, oh man, you make a killing if you want to go on eBay. I think they're about twelve or $1,500 for these things. Crazy money. And the computer's in the keyboard, okay? And then for those of you who don't remember, this is what a real floppy disk was like. For those of you who even remember floppy disks, everybody now, you know, is USB drives, hard drives, all this other. This was the big five-inch piece of plastic that was really floppy. You could bend it, had a little a little magnetic uh, disk on inside that little thing. It was thin as, as your fingernail. And then this monitor, that's all it is, the monitor. There's the, the computer is in here, 64 kilobits. That's what it was. And I remember as a kid, I got one of these things. And it was the neatest thing because I could program my own games. You know, you'd type the games and you go find, you got a little book and you type the games and you made the program yourself. Ah. But they want you to believe that they're going to send, I don't know, basically the equivalent of what got the space shuttle in orbit, or at least that's what they say. Um, <laughs> they're going to send that puppy to the moon. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So today we're going to do something a little different. Okay. <laughs> yes, speak and spell. Oh, my goodness. I, that brings back memories. You have no idea. I'm thinking Atari, what was it, 2600 or whatever it was. And uh, me and my dad, my dad would get in there and play with me a little bit too. But anyway, today we're going to talk, uh, I'm going to share with you a story. And yes, I have all kinds of markings here. I've been up since about four o'clock kind of marking um, the spots that I kind of want to highlight. This is a guy I've made mention of before. John G. Payton, okay, um, you can get this, you can find this on Amazon. Now, this is the hardcover. You can buy, I guess, some cheaper versions or whatever. But we have the hardcover. Uh, I bought this from my son, my second son, um, and I'm going to drop the link real quickly in here in case you guys want to get it, or you can find it wherever you want. It's fine, but this is so you'll know what you're looking for. Missionary Patri Patriarch, the true story of John G. Payton. So I titled today, A Lion Among the Cannibals. Now, why is that? Well, John G. Payton was a, a Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides. Now, the New Hebrides 
is a set of islands out in the Pacific uh, South Sea. The, the, it's and and they're full. They were full. They were full of cannibals. Okay, they were full of cannibals. And so, a lot of the show today, I'm going to be reading just excerpts here, and I hope that they are challenging to you and edifying to you, and possibly even rebuking to you uh, in how you hear that. And that's my prayer is that the Spirit of God will take this to your heart as to what we're going to talk about. Because, look, in the midst of things today that we are uh, doing or facing what we're facing, we're facing the equivalence of cannibals. Yeah, they may not. Well, well, let's change that. We dealt with this the other week, didn't we, when we talked about cannibals. Some of them are eating human flesh. There's no question about it. Some of them are just as murderous as others. And I want this to be um, a show where we give glory to God for what he did in this man's life. Now, he was born in 1824 uh, in Dumfrieshire, Scotland. Um, and he lived to be 82 years old. But he was a man who won these islands for Christ. And you say, well, what, kind, what makes a man like that? I mean, what would, what would be in, in a man's heart and a man's mind that he would say, hey, I want to not only be a missionary for Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of people who want to be missionaries for Christ, but he wants to go in one of the most dangerous areas in the world, an island full of cannibals. What, what drives a man to do that? Well, let me give you a little bit of his home life. And this is from the book. Okay, this is Direct Missionary Patriarch, The True Story of John G. Payton. And bear with me. I, I am going to read. This would be what I would do with my kids or whatever if I would point them in this direction. He said, Our place of worship was the Reformed Presbyterian Church at Dumfries under the ministry during most of these days of Reverend John McDermott, a genuine, solemn, lovable covenanter. Remember we talked about them with Douglas Bond on Friday. Um, who cherished towards my father a warm respect that deepened into apostolic affection when the yellow haired turn when the yellow hair turned snow white and both of them grew patriarchal in their years. The minister indeed was translated to a Glasgow charge, but that rather exalted than suspended their mutual love. Dumfries was four miles fully from our Tortherwald home, but the tradition in that during all these 40 years, my father was only thrice prevented from attending the worship of God. Three times out of 40 years was he prevented from gathering with the people of God in the worship of God. Once by snow, so deep that he was baffled and had to, had to return. Once by ice on the road, so dangerous that he was forced to crawl back up the broken bray on his hands and knees. After having descended it so far with many falls, and once by the terrible outbreak of cholera in Dumfries, all intercourse betwixt the town and the surrounding villages during that awful visitation was publicly prohibited, and the farmers and villagers, suspecting that no cholera would make my father stay at home on Sabbath, sent a disputation to my mother on the Saturday evening and urged her to restrain his devotions for once. That, however, was needless, as where the life of others was at stake, his very devotion 
came to their aid. So, so dad is demonstrating before his kids that he wants to honor the Lord on the Sabbath so much that he's willing to almost break his neck <laughs> uh, doing what he's doing just to get there with the people of God. Each of us from very early days considered it no penalty, but a great joy to go with our father to the church. The four miles were a treat to our young spirits. The company, by the way, was a fresh incitement, and occasionally some of the wonders of city life rewarded our eager eyes. A few other pious men and women of the best evangelical type went from some from uh, the the same parish to one or other favorite minister of Dumfries. The parish church, we're not talking about a Roman church, we're not talking about that at all, during all these years, being rather miserably served, and when these God-fearing peasants foregathered in the way to or from the house of God, we youngsters had sometimes rare glimpses of what Christian talk may be and ought to be. They went to church full of beautiful expectancy of spirit. Their souls were on the outlook for God. They returned from the church ready and even anxious to exchange ideas as to what they had heard and received of the things of life. I have to bear my testimony that religion was presented to us with a great deal of intellectual freshness and that it did not repel us, but kindled our spiritual interest. The talks which we heard were, however, genuine, not the make-believe of religious conversation, but the sincere outcome of their own personalities that perhaps makes all the difference betwixt talk that attracts and talk that drives away. Mm. What do you think about that? Now, he's writing this. This is his autobiography. He's, he's writing these things. We have, later on in his life, uh, he'll talk about um, some things, and I thought I had marked this place, but I don't know if I did or not. Uh, but he talks about, and I think I, I, meant, I didn't mark this, uh, but let me just give you the gist of it. Their house, um, which might have been at a different place in the book here that I, that I marked, but their house was basically set aside into two parts, uh, a place where the mother had her area where she did all of the things of the house, and the, fa- the other side was the father's workshop. And right square in the middle was something they called the closet. And after every meal, uh, John G. Payton's father would retire into this closet, and he would cry out to God. And John writes in his book, he says, Hey, we used to go, the children, and we, we knew it was a reverent time. And we went and we would get close to the door as we could to hear our father communing with his father. They would listen to their father praying. No one encourage you, you fathers, pray with your kids. Let your kids hear you pray. Nothing embarrassing about that. Nothing at all. But this was an impact his father had upon him that it was real to him. He went and retired himself into this closet. And as a result of that, he left an impression upon young John about what was going on. And so, this was, uh, this was a pretty big deal. Boy, I'm pulling out papers, and I shouldn't be pulling these out because these are things i got to get to. All right, so later on in his life, John had decided to do his thing, leave the house, and go find his way. 
and I want you to listen to what his father, this father who was faithful for so many years of his life, had such an impact upon him. I want you to hear what John writes about him on the day that he left. Two days thereafter, I started out from my quiet country home of the road to Glasgow, literally on the road from Torthewald to Kilmarnock, about 40 miles, had to be done on foot, and thence to Glasgow by rail. Railways in those days were as yet few. The coach traveling was far beyond my purse. A small bundle tied upon excuse me, tied up in my pocket handkerchief contained my Bible and all my personal belongings. Thus was I launched on, upon the ocean of life. I thought on one who says, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheek and freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying his hat in hand, while his long flowing yellow hair, then yellow but in later years white as snow, streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when his eyes met, when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could. And when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me, waving my hat in adieu. I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. And rising cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him, and just at that moment I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking after me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return. His head still uncovered his heart, I felt sure still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and off by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't know if you see that picture in your mind, but I see it. And I ask this question, how many of you fathers out there love your children like that? How many of you want to honor your mother and father in that way? How many of you had mothers and fathers like that, that you can give thanks to God for? Well, hey, if you didn't have them, you can have a father in God himself, Yahweh. You're able to call him father. You don't have to call him God. 
don't have to call him Lord. You can call him Father. For he's a father to the fatherless. Later on, he would go and he would enter the missionary field. Uh, much of what was Tana uh, out in the New Hebrides here. And one of the first things he experienced was a great heartache. He had a wife, Mary Ann Robson. She was daughter of Peter Robson, Esquire, as a well-known and highly esteemed gentleman. And he says this. I want you to listen to this. This is right as he's getting his start on the mission field. We landed on Tana on the 5th of November, 1858, in excellent health and full of all tender and hope, holy hopes. On the 12th of February, 1859, she was confined of a son. For two days or so, both mother and child seemed to prosper, and our island exile thrilled with joy. But the great sorrows was treading hard upon the heels of that joy. My darling's strength showed no signs of rallying. She had an attack of ague and fever a few days before her confinement. On the third day or so thereafter, it returned and attacked her every second day with increasing severity for a fortnight. Diarrhea ensued and symptoms of pneumonia with slight delirium at intervals. And then in a moment, altogether unexpectedly, she died on the third. Of March. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy whom we had named after her father, Peter Robert Robson, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. I knew then, when too late, that our work had been entered on to near the beginning of the rainy season. We were both, however, healthy and hardy, and I daily pushed on with the house, making things hourly more comfortable in the hope that long lives were both us, or were before both, excuse me, were before us both to be spent for Jesus in seeking the salvation of the perishing heathen. Oh, the vain yet bitter regrets that my dear wife had not been left till after the unhealthy rainy, rainy season. But no one advised this course, and she, high-spirited, full of buoyant hope, and afraid of being left behind me, or of me being left without her on Tana, refused to allow the thing to be suggested. In our mutual inexperience and with our hearts aglow for the work of our lives, we incurred this risk, which should never have been incurred. And I only refer to the matter thus in the hope that others may take warning. What had happened? Both John and his wife knew the words of the Lord Jesus. Let me show you. From Mark 10, 21. And Jesus beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go... Remember, he's speaking to the rich young ruler. One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. 
We hear that reiterated in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. He counted the cost. And at first, it cost him to leave his own family. At second, it cost him to lose his family, his wife, and his newborn son. But I want to tell you the favor that God gave John G. Payton among these cannibals. It's absolutely incredible. And it wasn't, he, he, com- he confesses some of his anxieties, some of his fears. And yet, he is one who goes down and he ministers to these people. Listen to what he writes about them. It is said that the habitual cannibal's desire for human flesh becomes so horrible that he has been known to dissenter and feast upon those recently buried. Two cases of this revolting barbarism were reported as having occurred amongst the villagers living near us. On another occasion, the great chief Nuka, I hope I'm saying that correctly, took seriously unwell and his people sacrificed three women for his recovery. All such cruel and horrifying practices, however, they tried to conceal from us, and many must have perished in this way of whom we, through living at their doors, were never permitted to hear. Amongst the heathen in the New Hebrides, and especially in Tana, woman is the downtrodden slave of man. She kept working hard and bears all the heavier burdens while he walks by her side with musket, club, and spear. If she offends him, he beats or abuses her at pleasure. A savage gave his poor wife a severe beating in front of our house and just before our eyes while in vain we strove to prevent it. Such scenes were so common that no one thought of interfering. Even if the woman died in his hands or immediately thereafter, neighbors took little uh, notice, if any at all. And their children were so little cared for that my constant wonder was how any of them survived at all. As soon as they were able to knock about, they were left practically to care for themselves, hence the very small affection they show towards their parents, which results in the aged who are unable to work, being neglected, starved to death, and sometimes even more directly and violently Uh, destroyed. He would go on to talk about a heathen boy's education was basically learning to use a bow, throw a spear, use a club or a tomahawk, any of this. That was their education, was warfare. And you, you look, here's this man coming from Scotland, living among them. He's lost his wife and child. Um, he talks about, a little later on, he talks about the fact that he took his wife and his son and he buried them and he covered their graves with shells and he would often use it, he uses the term shrine, but he would go there to remember them and remember what God had called him to. But he would sleep there to protect their bodies from being dug up and eaten by the natives. Can you imagine? I want to ask the modern Christian missionary who may hear this. If you lost your wife and child there, would you even stay? Many of them won't. 
Is your gospel powerful enough not only to save the people, but to drive you to witness it to those people? Because many people don't carry a true saving gospel. They carry a free will gospel. They, they carry it dependent upon the person they're speaking to rather than upon the God who has sent that message to those people. Not John G. Payton. He believed. Oh, he suffered. You're talking about stuff that will break your heart reading this. His heart was broken. There's no question about that. And yet what happened? He continued on amidst the people that wanted to kill him and eat him and eat his family. And many Christians today are willing to roll over because somebody says, you've got to get a shot. You've got to wear a mask. You've got to do this. You've got to say that. That's not Christianity, guys. That's not real Christianity. That is a veneer of Christianity. It is a false Christianity. Christianity drives us on. Christ drives us on. He comforts us. And I'm not talking about throwing a blanket around you and hugging you. He pushes us forward. He gives us grace to endure those things, as he did here for John G. Payton. I'm going to give you some instances of... uh, some of the things that, that, that he endured here. And the favor that God gave him in the midst of witnessing to these cannibals. He says, hearing these things, the natives, or he speaks about this, he says, um, Hey, poor fellow, before death said, I shall not again return to Port Resolution or see my dear Missy. That's what they called him. They called him Missy for missionary. Okay, But tell him that I die happy, for I love Jesus much, and I'm going to Jesus. Hearing these things, the natives insolently demanded me to tell them the cause of this death and of Mr. Matheson's trouble and of the other deaths. Other reasoning or explanations, uh, explanation being to them useless, I turned the tables and demanded them to tell me why all this trouble and death had overtaken us in their land and whether they themselves were not the cause of it all. Strange to say, this simple question turned the whole current of their speculations. They held meeting after meeting to discuss it for several days and returned to the message, We do not blame you, and you must not blame us for causing these troubles and deaths. But we believe that a bushman must have got a hold of a portion of something we had eaten and must have thrown it to the great evil spirit in the volcano, thereby bringing all these troubles and curses. And by the way, I'm going to read you a passage where one of the chiefs, actually, he, he actually spoke English. He actually acknowledged the great spirit that they worshipped was the devil. And they were fearful of going and worshiping Jehovah, whom he preached. So they tell them this. Another chief vindicated himself and others thus. Karapanunum, the Arumuno, or great evil spirit of Tana, whom we all fear and worship, is causing these troubles. For he knows that if we become worshipers of your Jehovah God, we cannot continue to fear him or present him with the best of everything as our forefathers have always done. He is angry at you and at us all. Isn't that interesting? They perceive that if they're going to follow Jehovah, they're going to have to leave off the God of their fathers. And he's going to be angry about that which we all know is a devil. It's a demon. 
Paul says an idol is nothing. It's what's behind the idol that's the problem. It's a demon. And they go on and he tells uh, various situations. Uh, He tells of women being sacrificed, all of these kinds of things. And he tells about God's goodness in the midst of this for the people who are there. And how God gives them favor. Here's what happens in one instance. One dark night, I heard them amongst my fowls. These I had purchased from them for knives and calico, and they now stole them away, all away, dead or alive. Had I interfered, they would have gloried in the chance to club or shoot me in the dark, when, one, when no one could exactly say who had done the deed. Several of the few goats which I had for milk were also killed or driven away. Indeed, all the injury that was possible was done to me, short of taking away my life, and that was now frequently attempted. Having no fire or fireplaces in my mission house, such being not required there, though sometimes a fire would have been invaluable for drying our bedclothes in the rainy season, we had a house nearby in which our food was cooked, and there, under lock and key, we secured all our cooking utensils, pots, dishes, etc. One night, that too was broken into, and everything was stolen. Now, you're going to love the end of this this particular story. Um lost my place here when I looked up to say that. Uh, it was broken into and stolen. In consternation, I appealed to the chief, telling him what, he had, what had been done. He also flew into a great rage and vowed vengeance on the thieves, saying that they would uh, compel them to return everything. <laughs> See, he's winning the people over because he's faithful, and God is turning their hearts. I want you to understand that it is not your job to turn their hearts. It's not my job to turn people's hearts. It's not my job to convert people. It's to disciple them. And this is what John saw himself doing. But of course, nothing was returned. The thief could not be found. I, unable to live without something in which to boil water, at length offered a blanket to anyone that would bring back my kettle. Miyaki himself, after much professed difficulty, returned it minus the lid, that he said probably fishing for a higher bribe could not be got at any price, being at the other side of the island in a tribe over which he had no control. In the circumstances, I was glad to get kettle minus lid, realizing how life itself may depend on such a small luxury. Having no means of redress and feeling ourselves entirely at their mercy, we strove quietly to bear all and to make as little of our trials as possible. Indeed, we bore them all gladly. For Jesus' sake, or as Paul says, for the sake of the elect. All through these sorrows, our assurance uh, deepened rather than faded, that if God only spared us to lead them to love and serve the same Lord Jesus, they would soon learn to treat us as their friends and helpers. In the midst of all this despair, they had great hope. That, however, did not do away with the hard facts of my life, being now entirely alone amongst them, opposed by their cruelty at every turn, and deceived by their unfailing lies. One morning, the Tannis, uh, rushing towards me in great excitement, cried, Missy, Missy, there is a god, or a ship on fire, or something of fear coming over the sea. We see no flames, but it smokes like a volcano. It is a spirit, a god, or a ship on fire? What is it? What is it? 
One party after another followed in quick succession, shouting the same question in great alarm, to which I replied, I cannot go at once. I must dress first in my best clothes. It will likely be one of Queen Victoria's men of war coming to ask of me if your conduct is good or bad. If you are stealing my property or threatening my life or how you are using me. And they pled with me to go and see it, but I made much fuss about dressing and getting ready to meet the great chief on the vessel and would not go with them. The two principal chiefs now came running and asked, Missy, will it be a ship of war? I called to them. I think it will. I, But I have no time to speak to you now. I must get on my best clothes. And they said, Missy, only tell us, will he ask you if we have been stealing your things? Do you see their conscience being pricked? By his kindness towards them as thieves? I answered, I expect he will. And they asked, And will you tell him? And I said, I must tell him the truth. If he asks, I will tell him. And they cried out, Oh, Missy, tell him not. Everything shall be brought back to you at once. And no one will be allowed again to steal from you. <laughs> then said I, Be quick. Everything must be returned before he comes. Away, away, and let me be get and let me be get ready. Let me get ready to meet the great chief on the man of war. Hitherto, no thief could ever be found, and no chief had power to cause anything to be restored to me. But now, in an incredibly brief space of time, one came running to the mission house with a pot, another with a pan, another with a blanket, others with knives, forks, plates, and all sorts of stolen property. The chiefs called me to receive these things, but I replied, Lay them out all down at the door. Bring everything together quickly. I have no time to speak with you. <laughs> he says, I delayed my toilet, enjoying mischievously the magical effect of an approaching vessel that might bring penalty to the thieves. <laughs> at last, the chiefs, running in breathless haste, called out to me, Missy, Missy, do tell us, is the stolen property all here? Of course, I could not tell, but running out, I looked on the promiscuous heap of my belongings and said, I don't see the lid of my kettle there yet. One chief said, No, Missy, for he's on the other side of the island, but tell him not. I have sent for it, and it will be here tomorrow. Ah! Do you see the way God works in all of this? Isn't that interesting? They fear this ship that's coming. They think is a god. And they're willing to give back the stuff they stole to the guy they stole it from to avoid uh, getting punished. I mean, they're, they're willing to, hey, this is your stuff. We're going to give it all back. And then some if we have to, whatever the case is. Now, I want you to see he lived among the people. Okay? He didn't just preach to them. He lived among them. He was by their side. He was a part of their community. I mean, they even called him, I guess you could say it affectionately, Missy, right? For missionary. Listen to this encounter that he has with one of the chiefs as he is doing his thing among the people. My enemies seldom slacken their hateful designs against my life. However, calmed or baffled by the moment, Within a few days of the above events, when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe. 
but the chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. <laughs> I mean, you have to you have to appreciate what God is doing in the hearts of these people, these heathen, to protect his man. Giving them giving the giving him favor with them. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made, and yet with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. Now listen to what happened. The next day, a wild chief followed me about for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal, immortal, excuse me, and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and headbreath escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow, and they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels, without an abiding conscience of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior. Nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. His words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, became to me so real that it would have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power, as did St. Paul when he cried, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after twenty years that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smile of my blessed Lord and those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. And he goes on and he writes about more encounters that he would have with these people. There, there's a whole section I'm missing. I'm just read. This is the section I'm, I just kind of went over to get to the end here. So what happens? He gives himself to all of this. These people who want to kill him, who have stolen from him, and everything else. What is the end result of this? What's the end result of all of this? He comes to the end of his book, and here's what he writes. Now, keep in mind, he had went back to Scotland to get missionaries to come to the New Hebrides. And he's having a hard time getting them. But he would go. And there were many who gave their lives and the winning of these people to Christ. He says, Let our churches then go forward on the lines which God the Lord hath blessed. Complete the pioneering work on the New Hebrides. Bring the gospel within reach of every creature there, and then set free your money and your men to do the same elsewhere. But even in China, or India, and in China and in Africa, with their countless millions, learn a lesson from the work on the New Hebrides. Plant down your forces in the heart of one tribe or race where the same language is spoken. Work solidly from that center, building up with patient teaching and lifelong care a church that will endure. Rest not till every people and language and nation has such a Christ-centered 
throbbing in its midst with the pulses of the new life at full play, rush not from land to land, from people to people, in a breathless and fruitless mission. Kindle not your lights so far apart amid the millions and the wastes of heathendom that every lamp may be extinguished without any of the others knowing, and so leave the blackness of their night blacker than ever. He's recounting the words that Jesus said to the Pharisees. You travel over land and sea to win one convert, and you make them twice the son of hell. He's, he's saying, don't do that. Start in Jerusalem, like Jesus said. Then you move out to Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. His, his Jerusalem was the New Hebrides. The consecrated common sense that builds for eternity will receive the fullest approval of God in time. Oh, that I had my life to begin again. I would consecrate it anew to Jesus in seeking the conversion of the remaining cannibals on the New Hebrides. But since that may not be, may ye help me to use every moment and every power still left to me to carry forward to the uttermost that beloved work. Doubtless these poor degraded savages are a part of the Redeemer's inheritance given to him in the Father's eternal covenant. I was just reading about this yesterday in the sermon that I read with the kids with our family here, um, <clears throat> because our church was meeting up in the mountains, and uh, we had some things that we had to take care of, and we weren't able to go there. Uh, but Spurgeon was talking about this, uh, the promise of the Father to the Son. Do you know that the covenant that we are in as believers is a covenant between the Father and the Son? We just get to be beneficiaries of it. But the covenant is between the Father and the Son. In the Father's eternal covenant, and thousands of them are destined through us to sing His praise and the glory and the joy of the heavenly world. And should the record of my poor and broken life lead anyone to consecrate himself to mission work at home or abroad, that he may win souls for Jesus, or should it even deepen the missionary spirit in those who already know and serve the Redeemer for us of us all, for this also, and for all through which He has led me by His loving and gracious guidance, I shall, unto the endless ages of eternity, bless and adore my beloved Master and Savior and Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. And then he can, That's really the end of this book, but he leaves a final farewell at the end, and this is what he says. Reader, fare thee well. Thou hast com companied me, not without some little profit, I trust, and not without nothing, many things that led thee, to bless the Lord God, in whose honor these pages are written. In your life and in mine, there is at least one last chapter, one final scene awaiting us. God our Father knows where and how, and by His grace I will live out that chapter. I will pass through that scene in the faith and in the hope of Jesus, who has sustained me from childhood till now. As you close this book, go alone before your Savior and pledge yourself upon your knees by His help and sympathy to do the same. And let me meet you, and let us commune with each other again in the presence and glory of the Redeemer. Fare thee well. Now, I would highly encourage you to get the book. I'm not here to sell books. That's, that's not what I do. Um, but this one right here, this guy, to read his story, one of the, the chief that was following him around with the musket and all, he goes on to talk about that he turned and rebuked him. 
saying, haven't I been taking care of your people? Haven't I been looking after them? Haven't I been working alongside you? And here you are. You're ready to kill me. You're walking around. You're following me. You're harassing me, doing all these things. He shamed the chief who was walking around with the gun pointed at him. There's another tale in here of where one of the evil captains of the ships came on and that they were going to kill him and his wife. And they said, can we stay here? And he goes, no, you can't stay here. Because he knew his crimes, and he knew if he harbored this guy who had committed all these crimes against the people, the people would turn on him. And he's like, nah, you're on your own, bro. So while he was a, while he was a, a loving man, compassionate, and desired that these new Hebrides come to Christ, he also had a place where he put up a wall and said, wait a minute, you're just unrepentant here. You come in, I take care of you here. This is not going to be good. But here's a man who gave his life for that. Endured great hardships. And I'm, I'm only scratching the surface. You saw, I showed you a big section of the book that's out of that. Now I ask you, and these are from my believing friends, what are you doing? You don't have to go to the New Hebrides. Nobody's saying that. You don't have to go to China. What are you doing right there in your neck of the woods? What are you doing there in the sphere of influence God has given you? See, that's the real question. It's not about, oh, I love God so much, I'll die for Him. I'll take a bullet for Him, or whatever. Nah, if you're not living for Him, you won't take a bullet for Him. What are you doing there in the place where God has put you? Are you demonstrating the love of Christ? Are you carrying the true saving gospel that saves men from their sin? Or are you not? Furthermore. Are you finding it a way that you do it with joy, even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of tribulation and trials that you face? Because people are watching you, and they're watching me. It's one thing when everything's going great, when all the needs are met, to give glory to God, isn't it? That's real easy. Even, even people who are not believers do that. You, you see some of these stars... They don't know God, but they give thanks to God, don't they? they? They at least say it with their lips. It's in the midst of these trying times where the gospel shines brightest. And I want to tell my fellow Americans, it's in the midst of the darkness that we are in right now where the gospel shines brightest. Hope is ahead if we're willing to hold out hope to the people. As we were playing in the pre-show music, speak life. Are you speaking life? Because that comes in the form of the gospel. The gospel is not a speech of death. Even though we speak of the death of Christ, it is a speech of life. A life to the dead in their sins. To turn from their sins, be reconciled back unto God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope it's encouraging to you. And um, I hope you'll share this with your children. You'll, you'll get the book, maybe share even the video, whatever. But do that and glorify God through that. Catch Bradley at 3 p.m. today, 2 p.m. Central. And uh, we'll see you in the morning, Lord willing, 6 a.m., bright and early. Adios.